Well, this morning we're, we're continuing in Mark. Mark chapter 12, we'll just be looking at two verses. Verses 35 and 37. If you have your Bibles, you can open to that passage. If you're using one of those church Bibles, you can turn to page 849. That'll bring you to Mark 12, 35 through 37. I'm having a great year. Well, I... That sounded wrong. Only one day into it. I I had a great ending of last year, and it's flowing over into this year. On Friday, we got to witness four people be baptized, and it was just a fantastic time together, rejoicing. And then, was it that day? Was it the following day? I I have another grandson now. I was born at 1.30 in the morning. Jeremiah, named after me, good name. <laughs> so I'm, and then I get to come here and worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's awesome. It's awesome. So let me read this to you. You've probably heard this before, if you've been around Christianity for a little bit. It's called "Behold the Man." Behold the Man. He was born in an obscure village the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying... His executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Almost 20 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever set, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as this one solitary life. That's true, isn't it? I would suggest, though, that the title of this really great piece, Behold the Man, is an insufficient title for the person that it goes on to describe. No mere man, beloved, could have such an impact on the world as Jesus has. He must be, he must be more than just a man. I believe our text today supports that idea, and that's what we're going to be looking at 
briefly this morning. But before we do that, let me remind you, like we usually do, of the historical context. What's going on during this passage here in Mark chapter 12, verse 35 and 37? We are at the end of Jesus' ministry. As many of you know, he was only a few days now away from being crucified. But at this point, on Tuesday, he is still in the temple and he is teaching. In general, the religious leaders of Israel were strongly opposed to Jesus. They saw Jesus as a threat, not only to their positions of power, but their prestige. They despised him. Why? Because he exposed their hypocrisy and their corruption, their false religion. Instead of repenting, though, of their sins, they plunge further into their rebellion by plotting to actually destroy Jesus. And in an attempt to discredit Jesus with the crowds and or get him in trouble with the Roman authorities, they asked him in this particular section of Mark a series of questions that were designed to trap Jesus, not to gather information based on the answers that Jesus might give. Well, we know, as we've been looking at this section of Mark together, that the questions fail to do anything but further demonstrate the superior nature of Jesus. The religious leaders now are through asking their questions. They've given up. But Jesus has some questions for them. So that's the historical context. Now I want to mention to you the context of the book of Mark. The actual book itself. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in this book, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we've talked about this before, but I want to mention it again, especially as we move into this text. I'm convinced that Mark wrote this gospel to help his Roman Gentile readers understand the true nature and identity of of Jesus, which he sets forth in this very passage in the beginning of his gospel. Jesus is the Christ, and he is the Son of God. Mark then goes on to demonstrate the reality of Jesus being the Christ, beginning in chapter 1, verse 14, and extends all the way to chapter 8, verse 30 which concludes, if you remember, with Peter's great confession, you are the Christ, which was Peter's correct answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? The next part of Mark, chapter 8, verse 31, extending all the way to chapter 15, verse 41, then demonstrates the reality of Jesus being the very Son of God. Near the end of this section is another very great and significant confession, but this time it is made by a Roman soldier who was standing in front of Jesus Christ as he was hanging on the cross. And Mark tells us that after seeing the way Jesus breathed his last breath, the soldier said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. It is the true identity of Jesus as the Christ and as the Son of God that makes Him worthy 
of being followed, worthy of giving our lives to, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our love, worthy of our loyalty, and beloved, worthy of our worship. This morning, I believe the text before us is appointing again to Jesus' unique identity. Let's explore it together. Look in your Bibles, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. God's Word says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, quote, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng, or large crowd, heard him gladly. All right, just three verses there. But this morning, if you have your outline, you can open it, or your bulletins, and open it to the inside. On the left, there will be an outline. And what we're doing this morning is we're going to consider here Jesus' puzzle, in a sense. A riddle, puzzle, about the Christ unique identity. So that we might worship Jesus the Christ for all that He is. That's where we're going this morning. So Jesus offered a puzzle regarding Christ being the son of David. And so hopefully we'll be able to break it down and solve that puzzle in the next few minutes here. The first point of this puzzle is the position. The position. Recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel is the very beginning of this intriguing episode in the temple, which is not recorded in Mark's account of the same story. In other words, if you put Mark and Matthew together, they both have this story in it, but they record slightly different details. Matthew picks it up a little bit earlier so that you can put the two together and there's, there's no conflict in the story. They're just giving you different versions or parts of the story, would be better said. So... I want to look at that real quick with you. Matthew 22. You can either look up on the screen or turn to your left. It's the first book of the New Testament, first gospel. Matthew 22, 41 through 42. Let's just read that. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So what I want to look at is just this position, this established position that was already held by the Jews at the time. Now the word Christ, just so that we're clear about what we're talking about, in our English Bibles, it comes from the Greek word Christos. Christos. Which is simply a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah. Many of you may already know this. But in other words, the words Christ and Messiah are interchangeable. They mean the same thing. Now the Jews believed, and many still believe, that the Messiah, which literally means the anointed one, that's what it means, would someday be born, 
and become a powerful earthly ruler, a king, anointed and empowered by God to rule over the nation of Israel or God's chosen people. And this Messiah or Christ would bring Israel deliverance from all her enemies. And she had many. This Messiah would bring true peace and he would bring to Israel a place of world prominence and tremendous prosperity. Now, based on Old Testament prophecies, which are simply things that are predicting what will come about in the future, there were certain things that would identify the true Messiah. In other words, how are they going to know who this person is? For instance, the Jewish religious leaders knew that the Messiah or Christ would be born in the city of Bethlehem. Now, we just celebrated this, right? At Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of Jesus in where? Bethlehem, right? That wasn't a coincidence. That isn't just an insignificant fact. Look at Matthew chapter 2, or follow up on the screen, Matthew 2, if you're still there, verse 1. I just want to show you this so we can follow along and see and understand why they said Christ would be the son of David and what they knew about him. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes, stop right there, the chief priests and scribes were the religious leaders. These are the people that should have known what the Old Testament said or the scriptures about the Messiah. So he gathers them together. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them. He asked where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, the Messiah, the Christ. That particular prophecy that the scribes and Pharisee or scribes, scribes and chief priests referred to is found in Micah chapter five, verse two of your Bibles. Now, just as certain as the birthplace of the Messiah was, so was the knowledge of what family line the Messiah or Christ would be born through, or to say it another way, who the Christ would be a descendant of. So I know he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but what family is he coming from? You see this in John chapter 7, verse 42. They're having a debate, is the context, about whether or not Jesus is actually the Christ. And just reading this passage right here, it says, Has not the Scripture, the Scripture would be the Old Testament, the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. These are the two things that they knew for sure. The Christ, the Messiah, would come from the offspring of David, and he would come from Bethlehem. 
Now, the offspring of David means that, as I've said already, that Christ would be a descendant of David, a descendant of David. This is a thousand years now removed from David. He's, he's long gone and dead. So it's not talking about David's immediate sons or children, but it is talking about his descendants, his family line. So when Jesus asked in Matthew, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The answer that he got was the accepted position of the Jewish community and Bible prophecy. It was accurate. You can write these down. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 6. Chapter 33 of the same book, verses 15 through 16, that refer to the fact that the Messiah would come through the line of David. So it was accurate to say that Christ would be the son or the offspring or the descendant of David. Now, while this is true, it is not the complete or entire truth regarding the origins of the Christ. And that really is the issue of our text today. Just seeing Jesus or more specifically here in this text, the Christ, as the son of David, is a limited view of the Christ. And it is, it is exactly that that Jesus is challenging when he asks this question in Mark chapter 12, verse 35, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? How can they say that? See, recognizing the Messiah strictly as the son of David is not enough to explain or make sense of a passage like Psalm 110, which brings us to the next point, the proof text. The proof text. So in this puzzle that Jesus presents about Christ and the son of David, first we've looked at this established position. Yes, Christ would be a descendant of David. That was accepted. That was what Bible prophecy had said. But that presents in itself a problem when you consider a text like Psalm 110, verse 1. So I'm calling this the proof text. The proof text just simply means a text that someone uses to prove or establish their point. Now, maybe you've heard me say this. Often, Bible teachers take text out of context and they use them as proof text to prove their point. But the problem is they change the real meaning of that text and make it mean something it was never intended to mean to support their position. Okay, that's wrong. But it's not wrong to use a proof text if it's being understood correctly in its original context. And I think I'm safe to say that when Jesus uses a passage from the Old Testament as a proof text to support his argument, I can be certain that he's using it in its original context or he's understanding it correctly. So, here's the proof text he uses. See, look back at your Bibles, Mark 12, verse 36. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus quoted from the very first verse of Psalm 110. 
This psalm was obviously accepted by the Jewish community, the people he was talking to, and Jesus, apparently, as a messianic psalm. And all that means is is that the psalm prophetically spoke about the future Messiah or Christ. In other words, when you read this psalm, understand that it's speaking about the Messiah. And we know that to be true because otherwise it would have been pointless for Jesus to use it in a discussion about the Christ. There's no point in referring to Psalm 110.1 unless it has something to do with the Christ. And certainly it would have been challenged by Jesus' audience if his point was irrelevant to the question he just asked. Remember, he said, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? And now he refers to this passage that speaks about the Messiah and also has David directly speaking about the Messiah. Before we look at that in a little more detail, it says in verse 36 that David himself in the Holy Spirit, declared. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared. It means that David was the human author of this statement, but that he was under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit when it was made. That emphasizes then the prophetic nature of the psalm as well as its accuracy and its truthfulness. In other words, you can bet this is an accurate statement. David said it in the Holy Spirit. You see that same type of language if you like to look things up in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, and Acts chapter 4, verse 25, and a passage that we regularly refer to, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, which is where we get our understanding for this doctrine that we call the doctrine of inspiration. How it was that Scripture came to us through men as the Holy Spirit moved them to write God's message to us. In this passage, Psalm 110, verse 1, you have the Lord, or God, saying to David's Lord, he says, my Lord, or the coming Messiah Christ, come sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. Let me show you something that might be helpful. Maybe you already know this. If you look at Psalm 110.1, just the first part there, you'll notice something. There's a distinction in the psalm between the lords. Can you see that? The first lord is all uppercase. L-O-R-D. The second lord is the normal way we would write lord. And it's making a distinction. The reason it's like that is it's making a distinction in the Old Testament for two different words in the Hebrew. The first word is Yahweh, which was God's personal name, sometimes rendered Jehovah. Jehovah. And so when that word is there in the original Hebrew, they capitalize it or make it all uppercase so you know it's a reference to God's personal name. The next Lord is the word Adonai. Adonai. And it means Lord or Master or Lord of Lords. And it was also used by the Jewish people and in the Old Testament to refer to God. To refer to God. 
But in the New Testament, they used one Greek word for both Hebrew words. And that is kyrios, which simply means Lord. So they use the same word, and that's why you don't necessarily see the distinction in Mark as it is in Psalm 110, verse 1. So just trying to point that out to you. And that's how we know the Lord God, the Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord or Master. There's a distinction, there's two different people. It's also worth pointing out how the early church, 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, understood Psalm 110. It was used throughout Christian writings as a description of Jesus Christ's superior status. Now remember, the early church obviously believed that Jesus was the Christ, and Psalm 110 was referring to the Christ or the Messiah, and in it they saw Jesus as having a superior status, since the Christ, according to the passage in Psalm 110.1, would be invited by God to sit at the greatest place of honor and divine power. That is, God's right hand. Making the Christ co-equal in rank and authority with Yahweh, or God, Jehovah. The writer of the book, the Bible book Hebrews, also used Psalm 110.1 to communicate the superior nature of Jesus, but this time over angels. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. And if you look at chapter 1 in its context, the writer is talking about the Son of God. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the superior nature of Jesus. And here he says in verse 13, And to which of the angels... Has he, or God, ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is a direct quote from Psalm 110.1. What's the answer? None. Now the angels are significant and mighty and powerful and awesome, no doubt. But the writer wants to make a very clean and clear distinction between them and the greatness and the significance of Jesus the Christ. For God never said, Come, sit at my right hand. He never said that to the angels. But He did say it to the Messiah. So the point in all this is that Psalm 110.1 reveals that the Christ would be a really, really big deal. Okay, just to make it as simple as I can, a really big deal. A person with the most incredible significance. Even a bigger deal, beloved, than the great king of Israel, David. And for us, that doesn't have as much impact, but for the Jewish people, that was significant because David was a very big deal. And we see that right in the text of Psalm 110.1 that Jesus quoted because David calls this highly exalted Christ my Lord. My Lord. Now this is where it gets interesting. And hopefully you're still with me. Are you with me? You look like you're with me. There's like only one person sleeping right now. We're doing really good. 
In what sense can David really or sincerely call one of his descendants my Lord? In what sense? If the Christ is merely or only the son of David, meaning a descendant or from the offspring of, meaning that he is simply a man, then how can his status rise to the level that it would cause the great King David to refer to him specifically as my Lord? And that brings us to the next point. The paradox. The paradox. So we have... What do we have so far? We have the position. We have the proof text. Now we have a paradox. And paradox simply means something that seems to be absurd or contradictory, but in fact is or may be true. So on the surface, a paradox seems like it might be a contradiction, but in reality it is true. Here we have Mark 12, verse 37, and Jesus, who is just so skilled and so masterful, just delivers this to him. He says, here's the established position. Jesus, or the Christ, is the son of David, a descendant of David. Okay, what about Psalm 110.1? In this passage, David is calling Christ his Lord. And so here in verse 37, he points that out. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son or descendant? The point Jesus is making is that it is absurd to think that David would refer to one of his descendants as Lord if he is just his descendant. What would account for David speaking about the Messiah or Christ with such an exalted title as Adonai or Lord, the same title that was used by the Jews to refer to God or Yahweh? One writer says this, stay with me, The point is that in ancient Israelite society, fathers did not refer to their sons or even more distant descendants as lords. Just the opposite was true. Inasmuch as David spoke of his descendant as his lord, he must have been referring to someone who was more than a physical descendant. Another writer puts it this way. How is the use of such a title, my Lord, consistent with David's own occupation of a superior position, that of a physical ancestor compared with physical descendants? Understand that an ancestor would be greater than the descendants that came after them. So why would David be referring to one of his descendants as my Lord? Knowing Christ is the son of David, which is true, and knowing David called him my Lord, we're left with a paradox. How can both these things remain true but not cancel each other out or contradict one another? And so we have this from one commentator. He says, The purpose of Jesus in raising the question was not merely to confound or confuse the scribes, but to show that to be accepted as reliable interpreters of their own scriptures, 
They must have a higher view of the true nature of the Messiah. Their view that the Messiah was simply a human being, the descendant of David, certainly a conquering king, did not do justice to the teaching of Scripture. For the Messiah to be David's Lord, he must be more than a man. How do you solve the paradox? It's actually rather simple. The Christ is not simply David's son. He is also, and more importantly, God's son. And that, beloved, is what makes him David's Lord. One writer says it this way, The answer Jesus intended to draw out was the Messiah is indeed to be descended from David. But he has a much more exalted role than that of a successor of David. He is the Son of God. So let me summarize. Christ is the Son of David. That is true. He is a descendant of David. He is from his family in outline. But even greater than that truth is the fact that the Christ would be the Son of God. And that is, beloved, what makes Him truly Lord and therefore absolutely worthy of being followed, worthy of giving our lives to, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our love, worthy of our loyalty, and worthy of our undivided worship. So let me imply, apply this just a little this morning. I am I'm fairly certain that most of you here would gladly acknowledge that Jesus the Christ is not simply a man, unlike the Jehovah Witnesses, but that He is uniquely the Son of God, God in the flesh, the God-man, right? I got a few nods, so that makes me feel a little more comfortable. This exalted Jesus, however, is the same Jesus that we say we follow as Christians. Is that correct? Same Jesus, right? So let me ask you a question for you to consider this morning. Based on who Jesus is, who He really is, in what way is His full and glorious identity impacting how you respond to Him? How you treat Him? How you think of Him? How you talk about Him? How you feel about Him? How you live for Him? How you obey Him? How you honor him, how you worship him, how you sing about him, how you testify about him. I was thinking about this when I became a manager in my old position. I was told, I was given some advice 
And one of the things I was told is do not become too familiar with your employees. In the sense of do not become their buddies, their good friends. Because what can happen is they become so comfortable with you that they forget your position. And then you have to remind them, hey, it's all good, bro, but I am your boss. Right? You have that very uncomfortable, I know we're kidding around and everything, but in the end, I am your boss. I have the power to control your life for eight hours a day. You have to remind them of all these things. And so I was told not to let that cross the line. Well, Jesus is a dear friend, is he not? A brother, a savior, a lover of our soul. But there is the danger for Christians to become a little bit just too familiar, too comfortable with this Jesus the Christ. He is much more than a man, a descendant of David. Even the image of seeing a baby in a manger sometimes causes us to to think of Him more in human terms and not in the complete picture of the majesty of this One. He is uniquely and only the Son of who? God. Creator God. Holy God. Righteous God, all-powerful and sovereign God. And it is this Jesus that we say we follow. Is it not sadly confusing and very revealing when we as followers of Christ, the one who was much more and is much more than a man, sometimes show more honor or reverence for a particular man? Then we do for Him, the very Son of God. God wrapped in human flesh. Maybe that would be a better way to see Him. God wrapped in human flesh. Jesus the Christ. Beloved, if we who are Christians would but meditate upon, think about, ponder the truth of who it really is, who it really is, that we say we follow, then it will impact our lives in the most significant way for the glory of God and for our good. Think about these things today and as we progress throughout the week. Let's pray. Father God, Help us get our minds around, to some degree, the magnificence of Jesus the Christ. God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, born into this world, living a perfect, holy, and righteous life, and willingly sacrificing Himself on a cross for the sins of His people. And now we as His followers, His disciples, 
Come under Him and call Him the Lord Jesus Christ. But why? Because He is the very Son of God. And with a title like that, it should cause us to quake a little in holy reverence. Father, help us get our minds around that. Help us to see Jesus for who He really is. For who He has been revealed to be in the Scriptures. He is uniquely Your Son. And because of that, He deserves every bit of our reverence and our honor and our worship and our obedience. Indeed, Father, He deserves our very lives. For we should be bowed down before Him in heart and mind. For He alone is Lord. If the great King David would call Him my Lord, how much more should we refer to Him and treat Him in that way? Father, do this work in us. Because it will bring You great honor and glory And the reality is this. Our lives will never be more at peace. Our lives will never be more satisfied. Our lives will never be more filled with joy and contentment than when we are treating Jesus the way He ought to be treated. When we see Him the way He ought to be seen. When we worship Him the way He ought to be worshipped. Father, we just want to exalt our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name, in His glorious name, we pray. Amen.